Hi, it's John here. If I was trying to convince you that someone had committed murder and should be banished into space, would the words red is sus carry any weight? It's a reference to a video game called Among Us. And you don't even need to know about Among Us to know about its power and reach because a new generation of politicians, people like Jagmeet Singh and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC as she's known, are taking the conversation to a new platform and a new place. And whether you're into video games or not, we're now at a point where it would be a huge mistake to ignore this shift and this rising importance of gamers as a distinct and extremely valuable demographic. For one thing, the gaming industry has been virtually pandemic-proof. In fact, revenue projections actually increased the longer that lockdowns went on. And just as conventional sports struggled during COVID, esports survived by pivoting to online events. Long gone are the days when people who play video games were seen as nerdy loners, maybe lurking in their parents' basements. Today's gamer is more influential, more connected, and more socially conscious than ever. And whether you're running a business or a political campaign or a community group, if you don't have a strategy to target this audience, to meet gamers on their terms, on their turf, well, it could be game over. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. The past 12 months have been huge for gaming. We got new consoles, new VR headsets, and powerful next-generation PC hardware. Records were shattered on platforms like Steam and Twitch. And maybe most importantly, overall spending was up. It was way up, reaching its highest level in Canada in a decade. So how can we take advantage of this massive shift How can our country harness the potential of the gaming sector to even help in the recovery? My guest today believes we're witnessing a watershed moment, not only for the industry, but for the world around us. Adrian Montgomery is the CEO of Enthusiast Gaming, North America's largest gaming network, which is based in Toronto. Adrian, welcome to Disruptors. Nice to be here with you, John. Adrian, forgive me, but as we kick off 2021, and it's so good to be into a new year, I'm going to challenge you right out of the gate. My gaming history consists largely of Madden NFL, and I wonder if you can take all of us who are not hardcore gamers into the world of video gaming in 2021 and help us understand why this should be seen as essential to everything we're thinking about. Well, first you have to understand, or we all have to understand, that video gaming is the dominant form of entertainment in the world today. It's a $150 billion industry, which means that it's twice as big as the movie industry and the music industry combined. But underneath that is a way more important statistic, in my opinion, which is the fact that there's two and a half billion Gen Zs in the world today a very important demographic that is growing and that will in 2030 represent a third of global income. And guess what? They don't watch TV. They don't listen to the radio and they don't use Facebook. But what they do do hours and hours and hours on end is they play video games. And when they're finished with that, they watch other people play video games. And that is the world in which we live. You have this powerful Gen Z universe who have never spent a minute on this planet 
without a smartphone? And, you know, how do you communicate with them? How do you reach them? The wardrobe into Narnia, if you will, is through video games for these Gen Zers. And that's how important it is. So I just spent part of the holidays with a couple of uh, Gen Zers, my kids, uh, and know what you're talking about, especially the relationship with phones. And I, I think it's a huge mistake for people to look at this generation and think that they have no attention span, that they're just kind of wasting away hours, days, or even lifetimes on their phones, because there's so much creativity and, frankly, entrepreneurship that goes on. What is it about gaming, though, that we need to better understand in terms of the Gen Z or Gen Z relationship? The simple, most important thing to understand, which escapes people of older generations, is that video games are the new social network for young people. Quite apart from the gameplay itself, it's how you make new friends it's how you stay in touch with your current friends. It's effectively your social circle. And the other thing that's interesting about Gen Zs is I don't think they distinguish anymore a preference between developing a relationship in person or developing one virtually. My CFO in my company just got married. He had two people at his wedding he'd only ever met on the Xbox console. Now, to me, in my 40s, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But it's not to him and it's not to his friends. And that's the thing. It's the power of the social network. That's an amazing story uh, because it really illustrates how social networks have become social platforms and virtual has become reality in, uh, in so many ways. And we see signals of this even in mainstream politics. I was fascinated during the U.S. presidential campaign. I mentioned uh, AOC. Uh, and she's a phenomenon on on Twitch, which has connected her with it's her generation, but in in, in really powerful ways. And it, it was incredible to see e even the Biden Harris campaign seize on this in the final weeks. And and your company was involved in that. Walk us through uh, what you did for the Biden Harris campaign and what that tells you, or what that should tell us about where gaming may be going in terms of the political mainstream? Well, it was certainly the, the most exciting thing that we've ever done as a business. They had indicated that they needed young people to come out and vote. They embraced video games. And if you can believe it, 72 hours before the U.S. election, the Biden-Harris campaign took over a customized map within the game of Fortnite. And we had our content creators and our esports athletes playing the map and it had campaign slogans and public policy pronouncements. I'd never seen anything in my life like that before. Four years ago, if you had a couple extra bucks as a US presidential candidate with 72 hours to go, you'd probably take an hour of prime time on NBC and ABC and CBS and you'd run some schlocky 45 minute, the man from Scranton, Joe Biden infomercial. And that's how you would spend that money. These guys were spending it in a video game. And the other thing for me as a, and you know, given your media background in print and stuff like that as an editor, what blew me away too was in the days leading up to the takeover of Fortnite, there was no press release. At 9.01, they just showed up in the game of Fortnite because it doesn't matter anymore. The people they needed to talk to were already there. I think it's a watershed moment in American politics. And I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton went on MTV 
went on the Arsenio Hall show and played the saxophone with his with his sunglasses on. That revolutionized presidential politics. And I think video games with Biden has done the same thing. Yeah, there's a school of thought that uh, every couple of presidents, there's a, a signal of a redefinition of the media landscape. This goes back to FDR and his revolution with radio, uh, Reagan and his uh, his ability to work with uh, with broadcast and then cable TV, Clinton with late night TV. Jimmy Carter with Playboy. <laughs> Jimmy the seminal, Carter. The seminal Playboy interview. Right. And, you know, of course, Obama was the social media president. Um, and then Trump took that to a very different level. And weird as it sounds, Joe Biden being the age that he is, becoming the, uh, the gaming president is an interesting concept. Whether it's Biden or not, he's certainly taken communications, mass communications to a very different place through uh, everything you've just described. And I wonder for people listening, you know, whether they're running a business or a social enterprise or just thinking about their own lives, what they should be thinking about in terms of gaming platforms as a place for non-gaming content, if I can call it that way, because a lot of people may hear this and think that's just too weird for me to think about how my messaging as a, um, you know, a, a car company or a local community organization can't see that being part of a Fortnite game. How, how can they think that through? The name of the game, if you're an advertiser or a car, let's use the car company as an example, you want to get people loyal to your brand the moment they get their driver's license. Again, let's use me as an example, because I wear two hats at Enthusiast. I'm the CEO, but I'm also the oldest person in the company. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, 46. So, so let, let's use me as an example. 25 years ago, when I was last considered young, how would GM get a hold of me? Real simple. They'd take an ad in the 30-minute broadcast of Seinfeld on Thursday night. They'd do a voiceover of the same ad and run it on Q107. And they'd take a still photo of that same ad and take a full-page ad in Sports Illustrated. And they could sit back and say, with a high degree of confidence, we know we're getting in front of the Adrian Montgomery's of the world. Mission accomplished, high fives, let's go have a couple drinks. You said you were experiencing over the holidays uh, video game moments with family members. They're not on TV, they're not on radio, they're not. How the hell do you find them? They're so highly fragmented that the only way to, one of the only ways to do it at scale is to go where they're consuming their content, which is on video game forums, within the game, watching other people on Twitch, watching people on YouTube. That's the only way for GM to get a hold of them because they can't do it the lazy way that they were, had relied upon for so long. It's a way, way different universe right now. That's one part of it. The other part of it is Gen Zs today have incredible bullshit detectors. They can get turned off really quickly by a company. So it's not just offering audiences at scale, but companies like us offer a language with which to communicate to them in a manner that they are receptive to and that are willing to understand. And that is the authenticity of video gaming and indulging in their passion for it. It's such a different ballgame today, but 70%, John, 70% of Gen Zs say that gaming is a core part of their identity as human beings. This ain't no hobby. I'm so glad you used the word scale. In our wrap-up episode for 2020, we talked about words to describe uh, the year that was. And when we looked ahead to the year that we're now in, scale was at the top of the list. 
this pandemic has disrupted scale. It's created kind of a new standard of scale that we're seeing through the, through the global platforms. And as you say, really disrupted traditional channels and video gaming may create new, new channels, new avenues, even new platforms for anyone who's trying to, uh, trying to get to scale or think about scale for the recovery. But I, I, I think, Adrian, you've just recast it in a really interesting way, which is to think about authenticity at scale. How do people who are not natural gamers or organizations, be it a car company or a, or a community organization that is not kind of a natural part of the video gaming universe, how do they be authentic in this new world? It's a difficult thing to articulate how to be authentic. However, the one thing that is super helpful for any organization, it's the use of influencers on social media. If you can get them to advocate for your product, that is for a company today as important as telling them that their banner ads on your websites are going to reach nine gajillion people. Because we may pat these Gen Zers on the back for their great BS detectors. But the other thing that's a reality is they are highly impressionable. They are highly influenced in their purchasing decisions and in their behavior by the people that they look up to on social media. All joking aside, there's a reason Kim Kardashian is a billionaire. And it's the same. So if you want to be authentic, it's one thing to run the be young, have fun, drink Pepsi on the Super Bowl. But when that gaming influencer who gets 400 million monthly views on YouTube cracks a can and says, man, that tasted good. I like it. That's worth as much as that Super Bowl ad. The fastest growing and soon to be dominant marketing channel, in my opinion, is influencer marketing. And that is that gateway to authenticity if you nail it. Enthusiast may be North America's biggest player in the gaming space, but it's not the only one that believes a massive disruption is underway, especially when it comes to how companies connect with Gen Z. My name is Josh Marcus. I am Chief Operating Officer of Rumble Gaming and Managing Partner of MKM Law. We are Canada's first law firm and management agency dedicated to esports and content creators. When we first launched, we realized that brands were having a difficult time reaching that key demographic of really 18 to 30-year-old, primarily males. This is the ad blocker generation. We are cord cutters, we are cable cutters, and we are really doing our best to avoid seeing ads as much as possible. You have this demographic watching videos on Twitch, on YouTube. The nature of advertising has changed such that brands are now able to use, whether it's influencers, whether it is content that's actually being created in a more organic way to make their presence known and to get their demographic engaged. Adrian, you've been in this space pretty much since uh, day one. Walk us through the origins of Enthusiast and how the industry has changed since those early days. It's a funny story. I used to run a traditional sports and entertainment company, which is, if you're familiar with the MLSE model in Toronto, there's a similar company in, in Vancouver owned by the Aquilini family that owns the Vancouver Canucks, the Rogers Arena, a number of high-end restaurants in Vancouver, Whistler, wineries, lacrosse teams, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I was the CEO of that company, didn't know anything about esports. But you know, one of the great levers to pull to make your annual budget numbers in a job like that when you own an arena is to put more live events in the building when the hockey team's not playing. 
And so we had an opportunity to host the biggest esports tournament in the world called the Dota 2 International. We had a bunch of guys come up from Seattle and they were running around the building like they were in charge of the Super Bowl. Quite frankly, it kind of irritated me. Uh, so to put them in their place, I said, well, you know, what is the prize purse for this tournament? And the guy looked at me and he said, 25 million US. I said, well, hold on. I said, the Masters or the US Open is like 10 million, 11 million. He said, what's your point? So we ended up saying There's, there must be something to this esports thing. And it was a six-day tournament. Now, to sell a 20,000-seat arena out for six days is a very tall order. So I phoned the guys, and I had Live Nation on the other line saying, how dare you take the building away from us for six or 12 days? Uh, so I was a little nervous. I asked the guys, so what's the marketing plan? They said, dude, we have an incredible marketing plan. Don't worry. Well, why don't you take me through it? I said, okay. Well, first, we're going to send out a tweet. I said, uh-huh. They said, yeah, that's the marketing plan. I did not sleep. They sent one tweet out, sold the building out for six straight days. Uh, we set noise records, concession records, mer merchandise sales records. The 87-year-old patriarch of the Aquilini family couldn't get into his office because all these people wearing costumes were lined up for blocks and blocks and blocks. He phoned me, said, what the hell have you done? I tried to explain it to him. Uh, and to his everlasting credit as a great Canadian entrepreneur, he said, this is the future and you, you must get my family all the way into it. A month later, we bought an Overwatch team and then we bought Luminosity and, and the dominoes started to tip over from there. I can't believe you were involved in that event. <laughs> that, um, that moment inspired us to do an earlier edition of uh, Disruptors. We had Dave Hopkinson from MLSE. They were, I, I think, modeling a bit of what you were uh, developing in Vancouver. And subsequently, I, when, when I'm doing presentations, I like to show a photo of that very tournament side by side with a picture of Sidney Crosby scoring the golden goal in the very same spot in 2010. And I say, like, this is what a decade can change. And if you're not thinking what's going to be different a decade from now, brace yourself because someone else is thinking of blowing up the model. One of the things we're trying to understand is the transformation, maybe revolution in how we watch. So we're all binging, of course, but I'm wondering as we think about a long recovery, but thinking about that day when we can go back to arenas and stadiums, I guess one of the questions is, do we need to? Because we've all become accustomed to doing this remotely and in, in isolation. And when I think about kind of the things you put on in uh, arenas, I wonder why do people need to get together for that when they could all theoretically do that remotely? Because I think the same challenge is going to be there in the recovery. Do we need to be back together in person or will we live in a more remote world? I think habits will change. And I think that people will be more and more comfortable living their experiences remotely. But there's something incredibly powerful about the shared experience. And so I think that certainly would never change, in my opinion. It may not happen as often. But again, in our example of that Dota 2, and it's it's so cool that, that you use those photos in, in your presentations, the aha moment for us, and it, it's, it's, it can only be experienced live, uh, this aha moment, is when you realize that those young people watching that Jumbotron, they're reacting to that gameplay in the very same manner that you or I would react to the Vancouver Canucks. It is every bit 
a live event with an uncertain outcome, which is the hallmark of what professional sports is. A lot of the decision makers in the world today are middle-aged, and they still remember that video games was the epitome of antisocial behavior when they played them, right? You were locked in your room, your mother was banging on the door saying, you're going to get scurvy, go, go get some sunlight. It's changed so much. And so it's every bit as real and visceral as, as a live sport. And I don't think that will change. So gaming is, as you've articulated, just one type of interactive content that we're seeing explode in this pandemic. I'm fascinated by the growth of TikTok, for instance, just over the last 12 months running circles around much more established social platforms. And I think a lot of it is that ability to interact, to, to play with content, to create or be a co-creator of content. It's not merely just passing it along, sharing or liking. I wonder if you can help us better understand how our relationship with content, be it gaming or other content, is changing as a result of the pandemic. Well, I, I think that observation nailed it, quite honestly, which is we're seeing an accelerated migration from people being passive consumers of content to active participants in their preferred content. I have a five-year-old and seven-year-old. Their dream is to become, to have a YouTube channel and to make videos that other people can watch on TikTok. So they're constantly participating in content, user-generated content, short-form content. These are all the rage now. And that's only been accelerated by COVID. Passive to active. That is the sea change that we're witnessing. Passive to active. It's a great, uh, great way of expressing it. I'm going to push the pause button on this conversation for just a moment, but please stay with us. We'll tell you about a prominent Canadian nonprofit that's leveled up its fundraising with gaming. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Our world is dramatically different today than it was just 12 months ago. But one thing that hasn't changed is our commitment to bringing you inspiring conversations with Canadians who are working to get our country back on track on the heels of the pandemic. Backed by the power of RBC's world-class thought leadership team, our goal is to identify the trends affecting our economy and the communities around us so you can be ready for what's coming tomorrow. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a comment or suggestion, you can email us at disruptors at rbc.com. Today on Disruptors, I'm feeling old as we explore the exciting world of gaming and esports with my guest, Adrian Montgomery, the CEO of Enthusiast Gaming. 2020 was a pivotal year for the gaming sector. And here's another example of how organizations are taking advantage of that shift. Josh Marcus of Rumble Gaming, who we heard from a few minutes ago, put us in touch with a charity that's been raising both funds and eyebrows by reaching out directly to gamers. I am Kevin Trung. I am the head of esports and gaming at the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, and my role is to lead their venture into the gaming space. Philanthropy and gaming isn't new. In general, I'd say gamers are really passionate, socially driven, and when they believe in a cause, they will support you in the most ingenious ways. We've seen it for many, many years. It's just, it's not as publicized. What is new is charities entering the gaming space with a strategy and plan to galvanize and unite these communities in an authentic way. So with that, we created the question to conquer cancer, which is designed to inspire and empower gaming communities across the globe to support our mission. 
What's really exciting is more than 50% of our fundraisers actually come from outside of Canada from over 45 countries. Thanks to gaming, we can reach donors in areas of the world we could have never reached with more traditional forms of fundraising. Adrian, that gets right back to your point about scale. And we've heard from so many organizations over the last year on disruptors that as hard as the pandemic has been brutal for so many companies and sectors, many have used it as an opportunity to scale up and to reach audiences, to reach markets, to reach users in countries that they had never imagined before. Here we're hearing from a charity that is suddenly raising significant amounts of money outside of Canada through gaming. Who would have imagined that? And I'm wondering, Adrian, what else we need to push our imaginations toward in understanding where gaming can take us? Well, I think that speaks to the scale, John, but it also speaks to the message itself. And there's a few things to unpack there. One is that Gen Zs are very socially conscious. They're very philanthropic. And so to be able to tap into them is a very smart thing for charities to do. When we're talking about how do we extrapolate and how do we think about where gaming is going to go? You know, Bank of America did a study at the end of 2020 and said, look, Gen Z's will be the most disruptive generation ever. Gen Z, 50% of Gen Z's don't drink alcohol. Gen Z's are not interested in getting their driver's license when they turn 16. Gen Z's aren't dreaming about owning their own home. Think about the ripple effects on consumption on the global economy from these, these facts. This video game generation just does things differently than it has ever been done before. Uh, and that's going to pull through the world in the next five to 10 years. There's another noteworthy development in the gaming space on the West Coast, where a company called GameSeta just signed a deal with BC School Sports, the body that governs all sports played in schools across the province. It means that for the first time, if you're a student in high school, you're going to be able to go to school and instead of saying you want to play soccer, tennis, or like basketball, you can compete in esports. My name is Tawanda Masawi. I'm the CEO and co-founder of GameSetter Esports based out of uh, Vancouver. We basically focusing directly on the high school esports space. We open up a platform. We build an ecosystem that allows amateur gamers to actively compete with their friends, foes, and people alike across the world. So in our business, there are three key aspects. There's distribution, IP, which is the relationships with the publishers, and finally, the actual end product, which is the game setup platform. Adrian, are we going to see esports supplant or overshadow more conventional sports in the school system? Yes, we are. 60% of Gen Zs prefer esports to traditional sports. We have a saying in our industry, which is a pretty dark saying, so please don't judge. But what we say is that every day, one Major League Baseball fan dies and two esports fans are born. Not scientific, but probably pretty accurate. Adrian, for all the people who hear that and shudder thinking that we're going to have a uh, generation of couch potatoes, what do they not understand about esports? I, I don't think they understand the focus, the discipline, the athleticism, the, the, the quick reflexes required to excel at esports. If you think about the biggest games in the world, like Call of Duty, Fortnite, Counter-Strike, what have you, people that play professional esports for me, they are that much better than any average Call of Duty player sitting at home could ever hope to be. They do things in the game where you look at it 
uh, as a fan and say, that's Michael Jordan of Call of Duty. 40 years ago, parents would perhaps steer their children away from playing golf because that wasn't a very athletic pastime. And look at Craig Stadler and all those roly-poly people playing golf. Look at the PGA Tour today. Tiger Woods changed that. They all look like Olympic swimmers. Is Formula One a couch potato activity? Look at those athletes. The examples abound, and I would put esports in the same category. Those are great examples, as uh, Lewis Hamilton has done exactly that with uh, with Formula One, the way that Tiger did with golf. I'm ha- I'm having my own flashbacks of regret to uh, misspent teen years where I dabbled in coding and uh, developing games. And one of my friends who I did this with, uh, he went on to work for Microsoft and did well enough to retire, got bored. Uh, so went to work for Google, did well enough and has retired again. <laughs> so I'm just thinking, boy, I should have had the discipline to stick with that. Uh, But I'm wondering, Adrian, after everything we've heard and talked about today, what would you say to any entrepreneur or politician who's listening who's not sold on the importance of having a gaming or esports strategy in 2021? If you need to engage with young people and you think that you can do it without some form of connection to video games, then you will fail. People sometimes say to me, it's really interesting, Adrian, Enthusiast Gaming has 300 million monthly viewers and this massive platform, and you have some pithy observations about Gen Zs, but I don't get why someone would watch someone else play a video game. That still is a prevailing observation in smaller and smaller circles. Meanwhile, the middle-aged marketing person who tells me that in a meeting Somehow, he doesn't have a problem understanding why someone would watch someone cook or someone would watch someone hoard stuff in their attic or why someone would go, you know, hunting ducks. This is all acceptable, and yet video games is not. People have to disabuse themselves of that. Video games, John, for young people, I can't stress this enough, it is not a hobby. It is their favorite sport. It is their social network. It is their method of self-expression. It is how they spend their money. It's how they spend their parents' money. It is pervasive in the life of a young person. My message to entrepreneurs would be, it's still an industry that is being built. It's still an industry that does not have a code, an operating manual. If you're an entrepreneur and you're passionate about video games, jump in because the story is being written. The aircraft is being configured in flight. Mistakes are going to be made, but pioneers can still join. What a, what a great and inspiring message that the industry is still being built. So get into it now. And I'm wondering how Canada can be a leader in this space. We have terrific gaming communities and developer communities. And I wonder more broadly what Canadians need to come to grips with in terms of this opportunity and how we, uh, if you pardon the expression, how we up our game. I mean, it's something that we should wrap our arms around and say, how do we take this seriously? How do we incubate this industry? And how do we become leaders? Because there's enough data points that suggest we have been early adopters. And you know, if you use the sports example, when I graduated from school, the first job I had, I worked for John Bitto. He brought the NBA to Toronto. Last year or two years ago, I was reading a Sports Illustrated article that talked about the 20 Canadians that were drafted by the NBA that year. And I said, you know, John, how does that make you feel? Because it all started 
with that one moment of the Raptors coming to Toronto and you believing it was possible. And, and now Canada is an exciting hotbed for basketball. I, I think the same story that the Raptors had the influence on basketball in Canada can be told in this industry. And I think that it is the future. What do we need? What we don't have in Canada is we don't have that VC culture, that Silicon Valley. Yeah, I don't care if you don't make any revenue and I don't really care if you're going to make revenue for the next five years. But you know what? Yeah, two and a half billion Gen Zs. Yeah, 70% love gaming. How can I support it? We don't have that culture here. We have to get institutions involved. We have to get people beyond the independent investment banks to start analyzing this space. That would be a start. We also need to see gaming as a creative industry. We're, we're going to do more work this year on creativity as a, uh, as a power skill for the 2020s. But gaming is not just about coding. It's about storytelling. And, you know, ca ca Canadians are great storytellers. This is the country of, you know, Margaret Atwood. And we need to help Gen Zers see that there are serious career opportunities as well as entrepreneurial opportunities in being creators and narrators and storytellers on these new platforms. Yeah, that's, that's such a great observation. It really does come down to the content and the stories. And when you think about the stars of Twitch who are gamers and the stars of YouTube who are gamers, yes, they're great gamers, but they're also incredible entertainers. The biggest gamer in the world right now on Twitch, his name's XQC, he's from Montreal. English is his second language. But he had 150,000 people tune in to watch him watch the U.S. election results. You may have answered my last question, but just as we wrap up, Adrian, I'm wondering what you think is next for the gaming and esports industries, especially on the heels of a remarkable 2020. Where does it go from here? I think on the business side, you're going to see more and more recognizable, iconic companies and brands embrace the space for the very reasons you and I have talked about. And then the other thing is, hopefully, if companies like Enthusiasts do our jobs right, you're going to see some of these gigantic gaming content creators become more and more mainstream celebrities. There's a gamer in Australia named Laserbeam. Last month on YouTube, his videos were viewed half a billion times. And so I want to see Laserbeam on the Jimmy Fallon show. I want to see that continued crossover and the moment that we tune in at 1130 to Saturday Night Live and a guy like Laserbeam or XQC from Luminosity is the guest host, that's when we're going to have another aha moment and go, okay, all this crap that this Montgomery guy and the Stackhouse guy have been talking about, now I, get, now I get it. If Joe Biden can embrace gaming, you can too, I think maybe one of the messages for 2021. Adrian, this has been a remarkable conversation. I'm still having flashbacks to a bit of my misspent youth coding games. Of course, it's gotten a million times better since then, but it's still about storytelling. It's still about sharing content, sharing ideas, sharing dreams and fears. And now we're seeing a generation do this at scale and at a speed and with a dynamism. That's fantastic. But anyone who's not embracing that, be it a big company or a government or individuals, is missing an opportunity. It's missing an opportunity to share content and share in human storytelling, uh, which we're going to need a lot more of coming out of this pandemic. So as you said, Adrian, it's just the beginning. It's the dawn of something and there's no operating manual for the industry. So a chance for anyone uh, listening to think about how they can help 
write that operating manual in the 2020s. My guest today has been Adrian Montgomery, the CEO of Enthusiast Gaming. Adrian, thanks for playing with us on Disruptors. Well, John, thank you. And it means the world as we accelerate this industry into the mainstream. So even to be on this podcast and and have you take the time to unpack uh, all the things that are going on is is an accelerant for all of us. So we appreciate you taking an interest in us. I've learned a ton and have a new enthusiasm for uh, (laughs) me for stealing your company's name, but a, a genuine enthusiasm. We love it. I'd also like to thank Josh Marcus from Rumble Gaming and MKM Esports, Kevin Trong from the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, and Tawanda Masawi from GameSeta Esports. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I hope you'll join us next time when we're going to expand on something that came up during this episode, and that's the challenges that charities and nonprofits are facing and how they're going to adjust in the recovery. The pandemic is forcing them to rethink their relationship with donors and all of us to rethink our relationship with community. Thanks for listening. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com slash disruptors.